HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And you know the political saying, as goes Ohio, so goes the nation, or whichever state is the current bellwether state for that election. But for the popularity of ethnic foods, it's whatever is in in New York, so goes the nation, with a few exceptions, I'm sure. Just think Bagels, lox, pastrami on rye. These are just a couple of the more popular Jewish items that have become synonymous with New York food. Foods that were brought by Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe to New York have become some of the most iconic foods associated with New York City. And their popularity is spread across the country and are often referred to as New York food. Author June Hirsch joins me today to discuss the history of many of these specialties, which she's written about in her book, Iconic New York Jewish Food. June Hirsch, a New Yorker, is a food writer and the author of five books, four of which focus on food. Her first book is Recipes Remembered, A Celebration of Survival. And her latest book is Iconic New York Jewish Food, A History and Guide with recipes, in which she continues her passion for preserving food memory and sharing the stories of Jewish immigrants as they influenced and imprinted their cuisine on the foodways of this country. Welcome, June. Thank you, and uh, thank you so much for having me. I, I should have had you write the preface to the book because you gave such a, a wonderful, succinct overview of, of what the book is really about. Um, I applaud you for that. Thank you. Well, I've been reading a lot of I have been reading a lot of reviews of the book and and your book and and it is for the slim copy that it is, folks. Let me tell you, this book is chock full of of incredible information, background, history, um, as I said, recipes, but just fun and fun stories, great stories, and touching stories. And June, I have to say, you have been researching and documenting the foods of Jewish immigrants for years now. Your first book, Recipes Remembered, and that's the the um, 
the survivors of the Holocaust and, and getting writing down a lot of their recipes and foods. And now this book, um, what inspired these to continue this pursuit? Well, you know, it's so interesting because when I, I first started working on recipes, remember the celebration of survival, it was, I'm going to say a small project that I did, um, having, uh, sold our family business. We were at a crossroads. My sister, so wisely said to me, we did well, now let's do good. And I was trying to find what my good would be. What was that path for me? And I had a real passion for writing and I love to cook. And at the time we were supportive and still are of the Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York City. And um, I proposed to them that I would write a book featuring the stories and the recipes of Holocaust survivors. And while the two seemed so disparate, it came together really seamlessly because this book is a celebration of the heritage that the survivor community has lovingly preserved for us and um, and all that they endured and how they went from tragedy to triumph. And a large component of it are the foods that they brought forward. And so in speaking to that community, I really got literally a taste of what Jewish history, the flavors of Jewish history, what really are the components, the, what I like to call the why to the what. Why do we eat what we eat in mm -hmm. Jewish culture? Because unlike other groups or ethnicities or cultures or religions, we don't come from just one place. We come from every place. And so we bring together this amalgam of, of food stories, and that's what I strive to do in recipes remembered. And that's what I hope I accomplish in telling the food stories of this community of Holocaust survivors. Mm -hmm. And then with, you know, you've continued now with the iconic Jewish foods. Exactly. Because what really happened in between is I wrote several other books, um, one focusing on kosher meat and poultry. I admittedly am not kosher, but I was really enamored in the mindfulness and the um, respect that the kosher household shows to tradition. And so I wrote a book on kosher meat and poultry. I did another book on Holocaust survivors. I kind of got off track a little bit with a book on yogurt's history. But what that did for me, even though it was kind of off-brand and off-topic, it, it told me that my true passion is telling the history and the context of food. And yogurt had a very rich and long history, and that brought me back to my roots. And hmm. so I proposed to this publisher, the History Press, that I, um, I do another book that delves into the historical backstory of Jewish food. And as a New Yorker, that just naturally brought me to this subject matter. Well, and you did it very well, I must say. Thank you. I, <laughs> I, I don't think anyone has enjoyed doing homework as much as I did. I, I overwhelmed anyone who I spoke to or certainly my husband with, with little tidbits and stories and, and, and uncovered little unknown or little known facts and, and figures that truly 
delighted me. And I, I was hopeful that that would come through in the writing and that that would be the, the takeaway. Um, and all my puns are very much intended as, um, as the times pointed out, I think Florence Fabricant invented a word panacious to describe the plethora of puns that I apparently use. But the takeaway from this, this book is that, food just has this fabulous story to tell. And if you just open yourself up to hearing the backstories, the foods become even more flavorful because the context gives them just such, such rich, you know, uh, rich backstories. And that's what makes the food important. It's not the ingredients. It's the story the food tells. Absolutely. Well, and and I have to add that um, this book is as well as your other book, uh, the the um, um, the recipes remembered book is uh, a charitable project as well, with a pro- portion of the proceeds going to uh, worthwhile organizations. Yes, and, and that's a very important component to me. That that mm-hmm. was part of the we did well now let's do good, and um, recipes remembered benefited. Uh, and at this point, we've sold well over twenty thousand copies all of the proceeds have gone to um, charitable organizations. Um, some has gone to reprint the books because we will never allow that book to be out of circulation. And I am very proud that Iconic New York Jewish Food is benefiting the Met Council, which is the largest food pantry. It's probably the best kept secret in New York, but it is the largest food pantry, not just of kosher food, but of halal food. And it is providing a dignified um, solution to food insecurity all across the country and very specifically in in food pantries in New York. It's um, an amazing organization that um, is really serving a, a tremendous need, and I'm thrilled to be sharing proceeds with them. That's great. That's terrific. Um, I was When I said I had been reading a lot of different articles and reviews about you and about the book. And there was one journalist, and I love what she wrote. She said, the iconic Jewish foods, about the title, the play on the title of the book, the iconic Jewish foods that make New York, New York. Uh, and yeah, so obviously you, you, we would say maybe Jewish foods are rooted in New York, but uh, it's really not easy to define. Tell us a little bit about that the fact that Jewish foods make New York or so, make New York, New York, or make New York what it, you know, the, what the food scene that it is. And, and I, I think they have definitely, and you use the word imprinted at the beginning of the conversation. And uh, uh, the book was almost titled iconic New York food that happens to be Jewish yeah. because <laughs> it, it is, it is, it could be written both ways. Are these New York foods that are rooted in the Jewish culinary experience or are these Jewish foods that made their way to New York and embedded themselves in New York food ways? And the answer is yes, it it is both of those things. Uh, When the Jewish immigrants came over, primarily in the late 1800s through about 1924 was when the last wave really settled in. And of course, it continues to be an influx from, from different areas. And um, But the Eastern European influxes were during that period of time in, in these two great waves. And when they came, they didn't come here by 
choice. You know, very rarely uh, do do Jewish people end up where they wanted to be. Uh, Generally, we end up by circumstance or happen chance and uh, almost never by uh, a, a planned move. So these Eastern European immigrants basically had little left for them where they lived and they came to America. And what did they know? Well, they knew how to be merchants, but what's so interesting is they knew how to be merchants of push carts because there were rules in Europe, in the area that is generally called the Pale of Settlement, which involves Eastern Europe and what's the Ukraine now and Poland and and those regions. And Jewish people were not allowed by law, to have stationary businesses. So they found a loophole. And and I, I found that Jewish immigrants were really good at finding loopholes. They found a loophole. They put a wheel on a cart, and they now had a kiosk that could move. And therefore, they got around that rule, and they were allowed to conduct business. Hmm. And so when they came to New York, that's why they flooded the streets of New York with push carts. It was something that they brought forward with them from their experiences in what I guess we can really call the old country. And that began their foray into the food world because at the same time of wanting to assimilate, they also desperately wanted to hold on to their culture. And they walked a very fine line. It wasn't easy. And if you picture the Lower East Side where so many of them settled, they, you know, the their community, the Jewish community, butted up right next to the Chinese immigrant community and the Italian immigrant community. And so you had this common shared experience of being new people in a new place who also wanted to cling to the familiar. Right. And so these push carts were an opportunity for them to begin selling the foods that they were comfortable with and also selling some of the ritual items that they needed to remain observant Jews in a place now where they were allowed to be observant Jews. So not only did they sell pickles and herring, but they also sold prayer shawls and prayer books. And so the push carts became really the the central focus of commerce, not just for Jewish people, for all immigrants, but Jewish people really found their niche in doing this. And so now you had these carts that were filling the streets and introducing the other immigrant groups to these foods. Uh, I I laugh sometimes and I say, Jewish people were in a pickle and had a smoking habit because (laughs) so many of our foods were either pickled or smoked. And those were new foods for so many of these groups. Right. You know, it's, it's interesting because you say they they you know were came with so many other immigrants and um, talk about the Lower East Side uh, brings to mind the Tenement Museum mm-hmm. which, where you'll be speaking, but um, also Jane Ziegelman's book uh, Ninety Seven Orchard. Yes, which I drew on a lot because yeah. it really tells the stories of not just Jewish immigrants but all immigrants. All of them, but they were. It's it's interesting because you say pickled and and smoked and so many of these foods that immigrants brought the the Germans with their cabbage and the Italians mm-hmm. with their their pasta and 
the odors, you know, there was, <laughs> there were, they were told <laughs> not to eat their foods and to stop making their foods. Um, but everyone wants their own food. They bring their foods because it's a comfort to them, right? That's I mean, correct. The immigrants. And so many of these foods that have become iconic that you have pointed out, which we'll talk about now, um, are, I consider like comfort food, you know, they're really, it really is to anyone. It's a comfort food, you know? Absolutely. You know, I, I, I often say that long before we knew about organic cooking or we knew about farm to table and we had all of those terms coined immigrants, that's the way they ate. If it grew in the ground and it could hold in their cellar, I, I learned that from recipes remembered that there's a reason why there were so many recipes built on cabbage and potatoes and, and celery root and turnips. These were the foods that were familiar and common and they were affordable. Now you come to America and all of a sudden you have these foods that you had experiences with back in your original country, and now they're available to you easily, and they're available affordably. You know, Jewish people didn't eat lox and bagels in Poland. Number one, the combination didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And number two, smoked salmon, lox, as it was known at the time, because it was really cured and not smoked. That's the distinction. But that food was not available to the average Jewish shtetl you know, villager. That was that was too expensive. They ate pickled herring. Herring mm. was food of the people. And so you look at somebody like the owner of Russ and Daughters, who started out as a as a herring salesman from a push cart. Right. And from that he built a what we would call now a brick and mortar store and established a, a dynasty of, you know, appetizing again, a word that Jewish people took from being an adjective to a noun. There was no such thing as an appetizing store before the Jewish immigrant experience. It just didn't exist. I wanted to move into that about um, appetizing stores, appetizing uh, carts, if you will, but they were stores now. Uh, and, and then the birth of the delicatessen, um, which... It has, you know, its roots in a, in a couple different places, but appetizing for sure, as you mentioned. Um, I want to talk about the, these, these, if you will, uh, stores where, where people could get these foods. Let's talk about that a little bit. Sure. Well, what I, what I would say is, is that very often, and it's, it's a common thread that runs through Jewish food going back thousands of years to the percentage of Jewish people who remain kosher, who identify with dietary laws. That's what actually helped establish the appetizing store, because now you had a group of foods that you could not mix with meat and other foods. So you needed, the Jewish community needed to develop a store that could sell herring, fish, cheese, cream cheese, foods that were now pickled in a cream sauce. And these were all foods that fall into the dairy category or what I call the neutral category, fish and herring and such are neutral. They can be eaten at any meal. It's, it's interesting that the word appetizing actually evolved from the fact that many of these foods were appetizers at the Jewish 
meal, whether it was a Sabbath meal or a Tuesday night meal, they were the foods that they started with because if you started with herring, you could then have either a meat or a dairy meal. It's neutral. It's like the Switzerland of food. And so when they came to America, you took that word, which is in Yiddish, forspeis, and it means appetizing, starter to begin. And that's how the word appetizing really evolved and became into this actual phenomena that took place in New York City in the early 1900s, where stores were established that could sell just these foods. They also sold nuts, they sold candy, they sold halva. And they also, for some reason, and I, and I don't really understand it, almost always sold dried mushrooms. You can mm. still see them. If you go to the Lower East Side and you walk down the area where Russ and Daughters is on the Lower East Side, and it's a fascinating, you, you go into a Jewish food coma as you walk down the street, <laughs> and you'll see that there are strings of dried mushrooms in the windows of most of these stores. That's why those stores developed. Right. And the, and the, you know, the, the strings, just the strings of those and the glass jars filled with them, things that I don't even pay attention that much to anymore. Cause you just sort of take it for granted. They're there. And that's interesting that you, you don't know mm-hmm. why the, why dried mushrooms. That's interesting. Right. Yeah. It, because it's evocative of the, the kiosks that they used to have. They would take a lot of the foods, bagels, for instance, and um, dried foods, and they would string them. And mm-hmm. then they would hang them from the sides of the, um, of the kiosk. I actually, I, I believe that uh, we have a photo in the book that, that shows that, that they would just hang them off the side. It was just a way to utilize some uh, additional um, display space. No different than, again, and you say you take it for granted, any New Yorker walks by a delicatessen, we are just used to seeing this stack behind the counter of canned goods that goes from almost floor to ceiling. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'd have to be a giraffe in order to get the item off the the highest shelf. And that's just the way things were displayed. They, They use vertical, horizontal, every square inch is utilized because we came from a culture where we were confined to these small selling spaces and we had to make use of every square inch. And once that's in your mindset, it's almost in your DNA, you continue to do that even as you move forward and become more successful. So you could look at any of the delis today who are incredibly successful from, from Zabar's and Barney Greengrass to Russ and Daughters, Katz's, they all have that display case, yeah. floor to ceiling. That's great. And, you know, it's, and the delicatessen, as you say, it, you know, it, it, usually they would spring up because in New York, real estate is so expensive too, is that in small spaces, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, across the country, it, there are delicatessens, not that many, but there are. And, uh, you know, we have to, we don't want them to fade away. We want to no. save those. But I was impressed when I, but to read something that I had not known about, that there was a magazine devoted to delicatessen and that the industry was actually regulated. Yes, it was very regulated. And, you know, what's, what's interesting is, is that, and I think it's because it's part of the, um, if I can sound prideful in this regard, I think it's part of the Jewish intellect to take the written word very seriously and to be governed by rules and laws. It's it's the foundation. And that carried through everything. You look at, for instance, the bagel workers. They were one of the first and strongest unions, and they set the standard for unions throughout. They were socialist-leaning, 
and they really valued the idea of having a set of rules and laws and and standards by which to conform. And so you look at the delicatessen and it followed that same um, pattern. They needed to have and they wanted to have a magazine and it regulated um, how much you could sell a knish for, um, mm-hmm. what, uh, how much meat should be in a pastrami sandwich. And these were things that were truly dictated. Now, some of what was controlled in within the delicatessen came from outside forces, and some of them could be viewed, um, I'm sure they were then, and probably even more so now, as measures to almost be um, anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic in some ways because they wanted to restrict what uh, the delicatessen could and could not do. And so you look at the blue laws, which regulate what can be sold on a Sunday because mm-hmm. it is the day where many were governed by um, going to church in the morning. And so restaurants couldn't open until a certain hour. And in order to be a restaurant, you had to have tables. Well, because delicatessens were not opened for the most part on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, if they had had to conform to those blue laws, they wouldn't be open on Sunday either. And so this, the delicatessen industry was very closely regulated and you needed to have um, a, a magazine and people who were going to stand up for you and say, no, no, the deli needs to be open on Sunday because they're not doing any business on Saturday. So here's what they need to do. Here's how they have to adapt. And again, finding loopholes, they put tables in and they disallowed uh, the takeaway. And as long as the food was considered an entree and not just side dishes, they were allowed to be open on Sunday. And so they got around that. And the Delicatessen magazine helped them accomplish all of these um, ways to conduct business. All right. Well, and that business, you know, was was booming in uh, in New York in particular. <clears throat> and uh, as it started to fade away, of course, it, it didn't fade away. But there was for a while that there seemed that the delicatessens were were not thriving. Um, uh, I I think we can we've moved past that, and and they are there, and they are there to say. In fact, there's, I think some are reintroducing it's such like the egg cream. Egg cream was, <laughs> egg cream was starting to fade yep. away, but now there are some luncheonettes and some small stores that are reintroducing them to, well, just introducing them to a younger generation who didn't know from an egg cream. Correct. So, uh, yeah. I use the expression funny. You don't look newish and it's the phenomena of reinventing these classics and bringing them to a new generation. Mm-hmm. I look at somebody like um, Gomberg Seltzer. Uh, they call themselves the Brooklyn Boys. And uh, they are, they have been, I think, a third or maybe even a fourth generation Seltzer family whose original ancestors delivered Seltzer almost like the milkman would Great. in cases, yeah. <laughs> you know, with 10 bottles of Seltzer of these beautifully colored glass bottles that came over from Czechoslovakia and Hungary. And they're just, they're iconic in their own right. And they now have these pop-ups, uh, egg cream stations, and they are bringing the delicious taste of a of a freshly made egg cream the old-fashioned way out of a siphon bottle 
uh, to a new generation of egg cream drinkers. And you've got to have You Bet chocolate syrup if you want it to be an authentic New York egg cream. And you have to have three hands because one of them holds the glass, one of them spritzes the seltzer, and the third hand has to stir it as you go. So it's not it, – it's, it's a three-ingredient drink, but it, it takes a little finesse to make it perfectly and get that really lovely head on it. But the egg cream is a good example. Uh, you have Peter Shelsky at Shelsky's in Brooklyn that is taking some of these um, sandwiches and whitefish and pickled lox, and it's turning it on its head. And and I'm going to say, and they're not all necessarily kosher, um, because we're going to talk about some of those specific dishes um, in, before you go and in, in, through your list because you've got you've already named quite a few interesting ones I want to touch on sure. um, more deeply. So we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk specific foods. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Okay, we're back, and I am talking to June Hirsch, the author of Iconic New York Jewish Food, A History and Guide with Recipes. And June, without giving away everything that's in the book and just talking about the foods that we that we all know, that, that somehow some became iconic and have traveled and, and endured, and some not. Um, but there are certain certain foods that you know you ask somebody uh, in let's say in in the Midwest about uh, pastrami, they wouldn't necessarily say pastrami on rye. They wouldn't necessarily identify as a Jewish food, but just identify it as a New York food. Mm-hmm. What makes certain foods become more iconic than others? You have any insights into yeah, that? I I tend to think that those foods that became more iconic did so because of a, of a couple of factors. One, I think they were marketed, and that was before we had uh, TikTok and Instagram and <laughs> and all of these wonderful podcasts that can discuss these uh, culinary adventures. But before all of that, they were marketed differently, and they were marketed better. They were presented not just to Jewish people, but to a, a broader base. You know, we we think of New York, and and Lenny Bruce said, uh, whether you're Jewish or not, if you live in New York, you're Jewish. <laughs> and the truth of the matter is, is that because 
New York does represent so many different groups, and we have all happily uh, blended together in this wonderful melting pot. Um, our, our food choices have, have crossed cultural lines. And I think the delicatessen was really instrumental in popularizing those foods. And they presented them in a way that was accessible, felt familiar even to non-Jewish people. You take corned beef, for instance, as many Irish people in New York bought bought corned beef from uh, kosher butchers as Jewish people because they were getting, they felt it was the best quality meat. And, um, and that's where they, they purchased their corned beef. So you now had, you know, an Irish family going to a, what we would call at the time, a Jewish delicatessen, and they would order a corned beef sandwich. And so now it's no longer a Jewish food. Now it's an Irish food in a Jewish delicatessen. So once you have factors like that, where you have a delicatessen doing a good job of presenting food ways that, that cross cultural boundaries, um, I think you help them to integrate more seamlessly into their food culture and thereby they adopt them and the Jewishness sort of begins to fade away and it becomes associated with a locale rather than a religion or an immigrant group. It just mm -hmm. becomes the food that you're just used to seeing. Black and white cookies, there is nothing inherently Jewish about a black and white cookie. Actually, it wasn't even started by a Jewish bakery. It started at a bakery in Utica, New York called Hemstraut's, who made a, a cookie they called the half moon, half half chocolate, half vanilla. And somehow it 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 migrated downstate. It ended in, up in uh among other bakeries, um, in uh Glacier's bake shop on the Upper East Side. In that area of New York City, you had a lot of immigrants, both Jewish and German Jewish, and also just straight out German. Um, and they, again, together, they decided this is a delicious cookie. And it, it became thought of as a Jewish cookie because there were a lot of Jewish people on the Upper East Side in that little area, but there was nothing inherently Jewish about it. So now you had bakeries such as Orwashers and then uh, William Greenberg and, and of course, Zaro's Family Zaro. Bakery, right. who I, I think has elevated that cookie to uh, a stature that we hadn't seen before and has now brought it to a much broader community. Well, it's no longer associated as a Jewish cookie when it was featured on Seinfeld alongside Babka. I don't think people in Nebraska realize that, that, you know, Larry David was calling out a, a Jewish baked good. They just saw this as an American New York bakery product. And, oh, when I come to New York, I'm definitely getting a slice of babka, uh, a half a pound of rugelach, um, and uh, a black and white cookie because right. that's New York food. And you just kind of brought to mind also, I mean, there are Jewish food tours for people when they come to visit New York, which is, you know, uh, it's wonderful. And the, you said that these were not Jewish foods, but popularized in Jewish restaurants. And of mm -hmm. course, once again, in the delis and, you know, what's for dessert? Well, we have a black and white cookie. We have a cheesecake. We have babka. babka. These, and a lot of the food terms, um, are actually Yiddish words with the actual meaning of something that mm -hmm. then inspired the name of the dish, correct? 
Yes. I mean, my, my favorite would probably be anybody who uh, grew up with a parent who spoke Yiddish um, and certainly a grandparent who was um, who immigrated here uh, had to learn a little bit of Yiddish in order to know uh, what they were being discussed at the uh, dinner table. And so in my home, that was absolutely true. And my mother would turn to me every now and again if I did something she didn't love and she'd say, oh, for gosh sakes, you're taking my kishkas out. Now, kishka it, it literally translates from Yiddish to mean intestine. Yum. Doesn't that sound appetizing? Um, but kishka is a Jewish food that um, has now uh, probably a better PR agent said, let's stop calling it that. It never caught on possibly because it had this off-putting name and it's now called stuffed derma and it is still available in most authentic delicatessens. Um, But kishka means intestine because back in the day, it was basically just a stuffing and it was stuffed into uh, a lining of uh, of the animal and it was the intestinal lining. Um, It's not the way it's made now, but but yes, that's what kishka means. Right. So a lot of the a lot of the terms really have a a true uh, meaning. The word bagel comes from um, uh, a word bagan, uh, and that translates to mean to bend. And so you look at it and you say, okay, that makes sense. You had to form a circle. You bent the dough. And again, I'll, I'll go back to loopholes. Do you know why bagels are made the way bagels are made? You're going to tell me. I am going to tell you. This is what I do when I go to a, a dinner with friends and they they unfortunately bring up something and I go, do you want to know why? Um, but happily, your listeners hopefully do. So the reason that a bagel is prepared the way it is, unlike some of its cousins, um, like the Tarali, which is, um, uh, uh, you'll see them even today in an Italian delicatessen. They're these delicious little um, circular crunchy bites. They look like mini, mini, mini bagels, and they're very often seasoned with anise or fennel. That was baked. Jewish people were, again, forbidden uh, from baking food in medieval times, and that carried forth into um, uh, the mid 1800s and the church forbade Jewish people from baking. But they wanted to bring forward with them uh, the pretzel that they would eat in Germany. So what did they do? They they morphed these two things. They made it circular and they boiled it. And by boiling it, which is what makes a bagel a bagel, by boiling it before baking it, they found that loophole and they were allowed to produce that product. And that's and what I love is that you even have a recipe for bagels in the beginning of the well, book. Well, there is a bagel chip recipe in in the book because I I feel that if well, here's my bagel advice in a nutshell: if you walk into a bagel store and it doesn't smell yeasty, it's not an authentic bagel shop. If you walk into a bagel shop and they suggest you toast the bagel, it's not a fresh bagel. Okay. So those are are two of the things, but what you can do with that leftover bagel, you can either toast it. And when you toast a bagel, you always put butter on it. It's the only time you butter a bagel, just so you know, it's not a law. It's a, it's a 
convention. You toast a bagel, you butter it. A fresh bagel, you smear it with cream cheese. But if you take that day-old bagel, it's really not good for much other than a baby to teeth on or a hockey puck. But if you cut it into these thin little pieces and you toss it with a little olive oil and some sea salt, you have created fabulous bagel chips at a fraction of what it costs to buy. And then you get that essence of the everything bagel by taking a little bit of sour cream and cream cheese and mixing it with spices or go to Trader Joe's and buy their everything bagel seasoning. And you've now made yourself a a little appetizer that you can eat really all week long. And uh, it's it's a real cheat and saves you a lot of money and and utilizes those ingredients that you might have just sitting around and going to waste. There are recipes like that in the book. They're all relatively practical. Uh, They are slight reinventions without losing the essence of the heritage and the original food story. And huge industry developed around these things too. Oh, What I wanted to talk about, um, you started out with talking about kishka. I kind of call them the K words, the K food. (laughs) And they're the ones that perhaps didn't become as iconic across the country except of course in within the you know the Jewish culture um and perhaps it was because as you said because they continued to hold that k word the k name or the whatever um Kanish, of course is is forget that that is you know that remains iconic and kugel mm-hmm. uh, um uh right now right kreplak kasha varnishkas um for whatever reason, and I and I do think it's all in, in the selling. What's a kreplak? It's a wonton that speaks Yiddish. That's a kreplak. It's yeah. the same food. But we all know what wontons are. I would wager to guess that unless you grew up in a Jewish home, you probably don't know what a kreplak is. Mm-hmm. It certainly doesn't sound appetizing or appealing, um, but it's a delicious little, you know, triangle or or pouch of, of thin dough that is stuffed with not pork, of course, but with a chicken and possibly scallions and, and other ingredients that make it really savory and delicious and, and a fabulous complement to a bowl of chicken soup. Matzo balls, say, everybody knows. A dumpling, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Now, you know, matzo balls, why did that catch on? It, it's hard to know, um, but it did. The, the maybe, um, maybe because matzo became something that people saw on the shelves at their supermarkets, and so it was a word that became um, familiar to more people. Kasha varnishkas, um, I, I laugh. You could walk into a trendy, uh, you know, uh, uh, Upper West Side restaurant and see on their their menu, you know, toasted buckwheat groats with caramelized onions, right? And you know, they're charging exorbitant amount for it. And I look at that listing and I laugh and I say, well, that's kasha varnishkas. It, again, not a dish that is readily familiar, but when I wrote Recipes Remembered, it was one that I became incredibly familiar with from my Holocaust survivors. And I will tell anyone out there who 
wants to make it, um, not for Passover, because obviously the noodles are not Pesadic, but if you do make it for for just a, a weeknight meal one day, make sure you crack an egg into those buckwheat groats while you toast them, because that's what adds all the texture and brings out the nuttiness in the uh-huh. uh, in the actual kasha. Hmm. Um, you can, why, why, why is it the bow tie noodle that's so popular in that dish? I honestly, I can't possibly understand that because they never cook fully through in the center of that bow tie. To me, in in order to get a perfect fafale, and again, if we're going to be very highbrow, you know, kasha varnishkas is, you know, buckwheat groats and and bow tie pasta, but it's a fafale noodle. It's a very Italian noodle. And I always feel that the center remains just a little bit toothsome. It's a little too al dente for my taste. Um, but it is always that um, that noodle. And you've given me something that now I'm going to want to research. Or if any of your listeners have the answer, email me. You know where to find me. Right. <laughs> Well, this is just, I mean, these and so many other great foods, it just, uh, you know, and I'm glad that you brought up black and white cookies because again, it's, it's a New York food. It's a Jew, it's not a Jewish food, but it's so hard to separate the two sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, and then, and that, and uh, I mean, I love that people think of New York and think of all these special foods. It is what makes New York special. Just like, you know, you can come to New York and find just about any ethnic food from, you know, all over the world here. And these foods, of course, have just taken root in New York and, and, you know, popularized uh, throughout, throughout the country, if not, you know, throughout the world. Without question. And I do love also one of the nice things that's happening, and it's not a new thing, but it's, it, but it's something that I think is on everyone's radar is, is that it's not just, Jewish people who produce Jewish food, or as we want to call it, New York food. Right. Um, one of the best bagels in the city comes from Absolute Bagels. It's it's mm-hmm. owned and run by by a, a Thai gentleman. Um, one of the most delicious brisket sandwiches that you can get is from David's Brisket House. They're a Yemenite family. What what is so special about the foods that? came of age in New York, especially during that period of time, whether they were Jewish foods or foods representative of other ethnic groups, is they were embraced by a diverse culture. It's one of the things that makes New York, New York. And because of it, um, you could get in in a taxi cab and uh, in the fall, in September. And trust me, that Sikh cab driver knows when Rosh Hashanah begins. <laughs> New York is is such an interesting um, combination because while everyone is very strong to identify and hold on to their heritage, we are also also generous in wanting to share and absorb each other's cultures and traditions. It's one of the things that makes New York as special as it is, and especially for somebody who loves food history and really loves celebrating food, not just of my culture, but of all cultures and preserving food memory by telling their stories. Um, It's communicated every day in New York throughout the food business, the way we handle food and the way we approach food. Well said. That's why I identified you up front as 
a New Yorker. <laughs> a and very proud New Yorker. Thank you. Well, June, thank you so much for sharing all this. And and truly, I, I, these stories are just, this is just the tip of the iceberg, folks. So thank you. Thank you. If you, if you want to learn about the hot dog wars on Coney Island or why Eleanor Roosevelt started a political phenomena with the Kanish, uh, I've got those stories to share with you. So I, I hope your readers, your, your listeners will become readers and, uh, right. and hunger for more. That's good. So it is, again, the book is Iconic New York Jewish Food, A History and Guide with Recipes. And June Hirsch, the author, has been my guest. And this has been another Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. 